everyone, and welcome to the 18th episode of the Tuesday Night Podcast. My name is SBJ, and with me today, I have Alan. <laughs> hey! It's me, Alan Gerding, G-E-R-D-I-N-G, D-I-N-G, one half of Two Rooms in a Boom and the company Tuesday Night Games, which this podcast is named after. Yeah. Oddly enough, coincidentally. Coincidentally, yeah. And then, of course, we have Sean with us tonight. Hey, how's it going? We are all here. What's what's new, Alan? What is new? So much is new. One thing, I won't be here next week, guys, so you need to decide who you're going to come in and Yay. have <laughs> some for me. I will be out of the country. Where are so, you going? I'm going to Costa Rica. Is that like a work thing? That doesn't seem like a work thing. I, I, I'm supposed to say that it's for pleasure because if I was doing illegal activities, that would technically be work. So I'm going for pleasure. <laughs> I want to make so, so many jokes about that, but your friends and family listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about it. I'm also nervous about it. I'm going with my wife's family, so it'll be interesting. But you asked what is up. The other thing that is up is... Listen to the 200th uh, It's Super Effective episode. Good work, SBJ <laughs> and crew. Really good stuff there. Uh, and I did get some feedback already about our last episode. My brother said, hey, SBJ does a great job. Great job. So my brother thinks you really tie the whole package together. That's what my <laughs> brother says. What, what else did he say? <laughs> I mean, other stuff, but nothing about the podcast. <laughs> you, you only you only butter me up, so when we run long, I can't be mad at you. <laughs> well, let me butter you down, because I listened to last podcast. There definitely was more technical difficulties, and I have my mic. I put it on bi-directional, because Jeremiah Isley was in the room with me. And for some reason, when I turn my Yeti mic on bi-directional, on my side, it sounds so like I'm eating the microphone, and that's what it sounds like. But we're the same distance away. And also, let me uh, tell you about the editing. I was listening to last episode, and uh, there weren't enough pauses between our <laughs> comments. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was, little, it was a little unnatural. For some reason, I, it was very obvious that our natural pauses were gone. You should put in pauses if we don't pause enough in an episode. I mean, I feel like I edited last week's episode exactly the same, except for the technical issues we had with Sean. It's always <laughs> my fault. Yeah, I was just teasing. I thought I'd be funny. Uh, the other thing that's really cool, what's up with me, is I got some super secret projects that we're working on over here at Tuesday Night Games. <laughs> some I can't wait to share. Yeah. We got super secret project SBJ. We've got Super Secret Project A. We've got Super Secret Project Z. And it'll, it probably won't happen for a long time, but Super Secret Project Q. <laughs> Can't wait. Can't wait. I have no idea what any of these projects are, so don't... I mean, Oh, you, you know about Super at... Secret Project SBJ, Sean. Don't be coy boy. Sure. Coy Alan boy. is a big secret, super, super secret project kind of guy. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I'm the opposite. I also am I'm a pretty impatient person, so when I usually in this podcast podcast's case, it's kind of hard for me to hold it for like 3 days before I publish it just because 
I usually just want to get it out there. Oh. Um, well, that's what I do with like all my like design work or web work. It's like I just want to publish it. I just I have no patience. I feel like feel like you're the opposite, Alan. Though you like holding on to those secrets. Well, I I don't like holding on to secrets. For instance, it's really hard for me not to talk about my bathroom habits on this podcast because <laughs> I told these guys that I might be late because I just sat down to poo. And SBJ texted me, I don't understand long bathroom breaks. So I knew this was going to happen. Yeah. I, Sean, <laughs> and so I knew when Sean read that, Sean had to be, uh-oh, here's a can of worms that SBJ just opened up. So I'm trying to hold back with that. And I used to just pour all the information out. And I hate to say this because one of the things that game designers are taught is you don't want to be tight-fisted with your game when you're playtesting it. Because the classic error designers make is they're scared someone's going to steal their game idea. And so when they start showing people, they actually get, what is it called? Not limits of confidentiality. Help me out, Sean. What is it called? NDAs. NDAs, non-disclosures. Yeah. So, hey, legally you can't share this. And that's bullcrap because that's one surefire way to turn off a publisher. So if you're a designer and you go to a publisher and you say, hey, before I'm showing this game... I need you to sign this NDA. They'll just say, no, thanks. See you later. Because the industry is so inundated anyways, and in such a small industry, that's not the case. However, that being said, now that we're publishers, it's totally happened where I've designed a game and shared it. And because we're on the slower side, another company has basically made it. So I'm not going to go into specifics. There. You think it's a direct result of it being public? Or you think somebody like beat us to the punch on something? It depends on the example because there's several examples. There is one example. This is going to sound so stupid. I'll probably get hate mail for this. But I told you the story where I was looking through my game design notebook and there was Mm -hmm. a game design that I didn't even get a chance to really try. And it was Spyfall, basically. And I just took that as a compliment. So that's like a really bad example of you know, sharing and getting it out there. But one direct one was I've been working on this game and I went to a competition where people with whom I had showed this game to had played it and they submitted a version of my game into this gaming competition. Oh, I remember that. Oh, you remember this? Yeah. So it was crazy. And the weird thing was they never even mentioned, they never even said, oh, by the way, this is a lot like that game you've been working on, Alan. So uh, that was that was almost the last time I'm like, you know what? Um, it's bad blood. I'm not I'm not going to be so open <laughs> with my games anymore, uh, especially since that now that we're publishers. So, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, listen to me ramble. No, no. That was like I was I was at the hanging on to every word edge of your seat because usually the trap and this isn't what Alan fell into. But like what a lot of designers fall into is thinking that the idea is the whole thing. And the truth is, like, as we've now learned, like, there's a lot that goes into making a game besides the game design. Now, the game design is insanely important because without it, you don't have a product at all. But then you have to, you know, do the art and the manufacturing and marketing and selling and shipping it. And without those, you don't have. Exactly. And so being afraid somebody's going to steal your idea is a little insulting because it's like saying, I'm going to steal your idea and then work for the next three years of my life every day and night to make that a reality just to steal your idea because it was so good you know um usually it just shows that the designer just hasn't had a lot of experience with what publishing looks like that's why they're so afraid i think the fear really comes from the fact that you can't 
patent game design either. It, you can copyright mm -hmm. and you can trademark slogans, but realistically, legally, I could release my own version of Pokemon and it could be the exact same thing. But as long as I change the art, the wording, I can legally do that. I mean, it, it wouldn't succeed because that's a horrible idea because Pokemon and Magic the Gathering already have that market nailed. But I mean, just look at Cards Against Humanity. Think of all the Cards Against Humanity clones that are out there. You can buy Krebs Just Humanity in Barnes & Noble now. Really? Huh. Mm -hmm. They have it at my local Barnes & Noble. I thought that was crazy. Spe speaking of copyright and not to get too off topic, now that actually everything you guys are talking about are, is on topic of our podcast, but... Shut up. <laughs> uh, Sriracha uh, doesn't copyright anything. The sauce? Yeah. So I've, I've said this before. I, I work for an e-cigarette company and there's actually not, not my company, but there's a different company there. Their vape brand is called Sriracha Vape Company and they're in, <laughs> they're in little Sriracha bottles. I, I, I not that. Sriracha flavor. I think they have like a licorice and a, like a uh, cream flavor, but they're in little Sriracha bottles and they have like the Sriracha logo and everything on it. And you would think that it would hurt their brand but it doesn't and like having no copyrights on sriracha has not ruined sriracha at all like they're still very successful as being a hot sauce it makes me want to start a brand like a line of sports shoes called nike box just, just i also like, love what? the fact that you just advertised your company's competitor and not your own company so much <laughs> i mean welcome to the world of vaping it's real dumb <laughs> i can't wait to hear the edited version which is a joke because, you know, I don't listen to it, but um, it's like, yeah, and there's this competitor and then all of a sudden it cuts in like, my e-cigarette company is great. <laughs> I don't get paid enough to promote my own company. I work for. There you go. That's the thought. You don't work in marketing. That's right. Uh, speaking of marketing, this is a bad transition into table talk. <laughs> Let's market some other games. And uh, let's talk about what we've been playing. Alan, you have the list. I do have the list. What have you been playing, SBJ? Oh, nothing. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to get that out there again. I see a little purple nothing with a sad face emoji down there. Yeah. Or I guess it's an emoticon. What is it when it's not like an emoji is what we all call it now. What do you but call when it when just... it's just colon? parentheses yeah um t9 <laughs> t9 what is that t9 is when before it was like on the razor or other like nokia phones before touchscreen keyboards you would like wow. t9 in i'm not gonna explain it <laughs> uh, you had me you had me and then you lost me <laughs> i've been playing xcom ufo defense the board game that sounds wrecking war dinosaur treasure of the snake no thanks, Desert Island, and oh wait, that's it. Uh, so the the two games, Wreck and Roar Dinosaur and Treasure of the Snake, are total total kid games, almost toys. Because I had my seven year old nephew come over last weekend, and we just had a game day. We played mostly video games, but I wanted to be able to tell his parents that we didn't just play video games the entire time. So we pulled out Wreck and War Dinosaur, which is like a Play-Doh game where you your dinosaurs come as skeletons, but you make the Play-Doh the flesh, and then you have to attack each other's dinosaurs to eat the Play-Doh flesh off of them. Pretty oh. cool. Yeah. And then Treasure of the Snake was cool, too, because it's this, this 
basket that has a snake in there, but it has a motion sensor. And it's basically red light, green light, because you see the snake's eyes. And when it's, its eyes are red, you have to freeze. When it's green, you're supposed to approach the snake. And the object is to get a jewel out of the basket. It's really cool. That sounds real. That sounds awesome. I've got like 12 insanely dirty jokes. I'm just trying not to say. Right. Because I'm, I'm his uncle. He's my nephew. Is uncle, that snake, with? red light, green light. I mean, it's all over the place, man. Um, all right. Good. Good. Is, uh, is the XCOM game an expansion? No. No, no, just XCOM the board game. It you it requires an app. It's oh, from. Okay. I want to hear about this one, and I want to hear an elevator pitch for this one because I think I know who you played it with. Yeah. And yeah. it also seems like the kind of game you would probably hate. Although I then I'm imagining you saying I'd probably not hate it if I played it with X type of people or whatever. So I really want to hear about this one. Damn it. Okay. Give, I wanted to me, hear about I wanted to hear about Desert Island, but nobody cares. Give me the pitch as if you're an old miner, miner. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> oh man this when i say thing. old miner i mean like a miner like somebody who's 18 but is also really old oh <laughs> no that's not what i mean at all give me the pitch as if you are an alien from outer space go <laughs> all right here we go uh Sorry, that was probably when I should have started, but I just love saying, ding me, SBJ. Uh, hello, Earthlings. I'm uh, invading your elevator. A good thing you're not part of the U the XCOM UFO defense team. In this one-to-four-player cooperative game, which requires an app to play, you will have your own job. It's ridiculously complicated and very hard to explain especially in an elevator pitch but someone reads the app and someone else manages the money yes and someone else controls the foot soldiers 30 so, seconds uh, so someone else has to control the ships that attack the ufos but once the ufos land the the foot soldiers have to fight them it's a whole bunch of beep boop and screaming and ah ah and at the end of the game which is over an hour you've had to have worked cooperatively it's very difficult aliens will win hey <laughs> so pretty i watched good. pretty good <laughs> i watched uh shut up and sit down's review of this game yeah completely not sold on it yeah, what did they say? Let's like, let's make our show all about their show. I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, uh, what did they say? So it was Paul that was reviewing it. That was, and it was it was after he moved from where did it, England to Canada? Yeah. Yes. Let's talk where where Paul lives. That's important. Um, <laughs> I think if you he said, email us. We'll he talks email about it a lot. His address. Yeah, I, I think it, it almost they do this thing where they they build it up to like they like it and then at the very end they break down every reason why they don't like it so i think overall he couldn't i'm That's pretty kind of sure funny from a thematic standpoint because even the review is structured like their love of the game they thought they were going to love it for all these reasons and they didn't right yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure at the end that he he couldn't recommend it so i loved the XCOM video game the new one that came out i thought it was super fun it was everything I wanted from a video game. I would play that game forever and forever and a day. But I don't know how, how well that would translate in a board game. Alan, how do you think it did? Well, I've only played the old XCOM video game from, I want to say, late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, yeah. And I loved it. And one of the things I loved about the old XCOM computer game was your soldiers would level up. They'd have their own job because there's unit-specific skills. And I just remember basically my sniper leveling up. And then when my sniper died, I wanted to destroy everything because he was not (laughs) coming back. It was one of those definite moments where I screamed out loud. No! And was really upset because I worked so hard and long on getting this person upgraded. So how did it translate as to a board game? Well, I played with uh, our web guy and good friend Reed because Reed's a huge fan of XCOM UFO defense. And it's such a cool premise that the world's being overtaken by aliens and you have to manage the world's budget as well as manage your soldiers and the jets and expenses and there's a panic level. So let's suppose Africa is really getting overwhelmed, overwhelmed with UFOs. Well, you're not going to get a whole bunch of help from Africa anymore because they're too busy running all over the place, getting vaporized by aliens in order to send troops your way or resources to help you build jets to fight the UFOs. It's, it's really interesting. So the board game, I will just say this. I sat down expecting to not like it because of how heavy it is because there's so many components but i knew i wanted to play because i have a love for the game and i have a love for reed and i remember as he's reading the rules through the app it's so weird because the rule book only has two pages to it it basically just says yeah the app's going to teach you the rules and i kind of disagree with how the app teaches the rules as you play because you really have to suspend your confusion it's basically praying to the church of board game rule understanding and hoping, all right, this is eventually going to make sense. Did it? Yes, it did. And the weird thing is after we were done playing, I was thinking about it for over 24 hours thinking, what, how does, how does this game work? And, and like, I know my job and everyone else's job, but how do you play it? Well, and it's really intricate, almost like cogs in a machine, how it fits together. So here's here's the criticism that I would give it is uh, my job is I controlled the foot soldiers. So I'd ascend very specific soldiers. There's heavy soldiers, snipers, support and assault soldiers. So four different types. And I had to send them in against different alien encounters. And there's an alien deck where I flipped over and they had different health, different skills. The aliens did. And you had to match their weaknesses to the soldier type. That was the only feel you got for the type. Like my sniper really Hmm. never felt like a sniper. It was just like, oh, my sniper has the sniper icon and this alien's vulnerable to sniper attack. So I'm sending the soldier. Yeah. And the way that your soldiers upgraded and leveled up was someone else. And it was the commander who controls the jets had an action card, basically, that they could take one of my soldiers and upgrade them, but that soldier's out for the round. So it wasn't because the soldier was successfully killing aliens that it leveled up. So thematically, I never felt like these soldiers were unique people and they were leveling up. I never said, no, Smithers is dead. I never did any of that. So I didn't It almost seems like it would work better as an old school role-playing game. Yeah. Permadeath and leveling up and fighting aliens. And it seems like it would work really well in that regard. 
I think it would be heavy emphasis on the bookkeeping of it, where someone would actually have to manage a budget and manage the transport into different continents. Oh, yeah. So basically, my job was just on the ground. And so I didn't have to worry too much about different continents. Then the commander's job was allocating money because for every soldier I put into play, it took one buckazoid, basically, space buck. <laughs> buckazoid. I love buckazoid. Yeah. So they had to spend one buckazoid, and then every jet costs a buckazoid. And then the researcher uh, made tech. So another job was basically the engineer lead scientist where they had to choose tech, which upgraded things. And let me tell you, without that tech, we'd be screwed. It basically gave us action cards that gave us advantages. For instance, one of my tech cards said, oh, use this tech card and this alien's vulnerable to all types of soldiers. So that way I could send a support soldier against any alien. Anyway. That being said, let me just fast forward to the results. I had a blast. Hey. We all had blasts. And when you really narrow it down, the decisions I had to make got more and more complicated as I got more tech cards. And I was so busy worrying about my own stuff that I wasn't paying too much attention to everyone else. And everyone else is in the same boat. When it came down to combat, it was really simple, where you just roll six-sided dice, and you get a six-sided die for every type of soldier you had on it, or every scientist you had researching, or every jet you had defending, or every satellite you had defending the orbit. Those are the four different roles. And you always had one enemy die, and it was an eight-sided die. So every die had two success faces on it, so you always had a one in three chance of success with every roll. And that was the way it was for everybody. So that was really overly simplistic, but that's not all the game really is. So we looked around, and even though it was that simple rolling dice and just having chance, we definitely had those screaming moments of intensity where it's like everything builds up to a single dice roll. But yeah, preparation you did before then affects that. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. I mean, if you really want to get into specifics, more so than I've already given, is if you fail a roll, Everybody dies if you roll the alien die and they succeed. So if the alien succeeds, all your soldiers on that mission die. All your jets in that continent blow up. It's horrible. But the chances are one in eight that the aliens will succeed. But if you don't succeed your die roll, you roll again. But now the threat level goes to two. So every time you re-roll, the threat level goes up by one and it's easier and easier for the aliens to succeed. So the first time it's a threat level. Oh, because they have to roll two, two out of eight, and then three out of eight, and then, then three out of eight, then four oh. out of eight, then five out of eight. So this it sounds gets fun. It, it's really intense and it's cool watching because there's two phases. There's a time phase, and then there's the actual dice rolling phase where you get to watch everyone roll dice. And there's that whole should I go in deeper? Like I don't know. The threat level's at four. You're at a fifty-fifty chance of losing all of those jets in Africa, bro. I don't know. And then someone always ended up going. Do it. So we'd roll the dice and then all the <laughs> blown up. But if they rolled the successes, it felt like it was worth it because the aliens blew up as well. So anyway. So let me ask you this. You yeah. wouldn't consider yourself necessarily a, a heavy gamer. Uh, Euro games. As soon as the game gets more than 30 minutes, the Alan Girding motto is after 30 minutes, I'm going to start imagining what other games we could have been playing that were more fun that take less time. Okay. So in your opinion, what makes a good experience specifically in a heavy game? 
So it has to be worth the time for number one, because we talked about this in a previous podcast where it all comes down to the amount of time and enjoyment in players. This to me was definitely worth it because I felt very connected to the three other players with whom I was playing. And we really, as a cooperative game, really joined together and were sweating bullets all the time. So it was it was an experience. So that, that camaraderie, that feeling like you'd been through hell with people, that's what made it worthwhile to you. Yeah, for example, I wasn't even sure if I was going to talk about it on this podcast, but you asked for it, and here I am, probably spent way too much time talking about XCOM. I, we will never forget that night. We that's will huge. never forget that night. That's a huge night. endorsement. Yeah, it's a huge endorsement. Uh, it takes a while to get there because, man, it's heavy as fuck. Like try when you learn, but once you finally learn, everything clicks and you you'd have to play the game a lot in order for you to know everybody's job and more importantly, understand everyone's job well enough to do it. So I can guarantee if we're going to play again, we're going to have the exact same jobs just so that you can master them and and do them effectively. Yeah. And speaking of which, I can't imagine playing this one player or two players where you had to do multiple jobs. Poop on that. Mm. Would you rather play this or Descent or Imperial Assault? To be fair, I haven't played Imperial Assault. I just meant like that kind of game. Yeah. Uh, Right now, definitely this because Descent was just too slow for me. Descent way too slow. This is not slow. By definition, you're timed and you're (laughs) even though it takes over an hour, you're sweating bullets the entire time. That's pretty cool. You would love it if you like when you come over for the summer and live with us Absolutely. for the summer again. We're totally going to play this with Reed and whatever schlub we can get in. That what? sounds great. Yeah. No, this I, that sounds a heavy game is worthwhile to me if your decisions matter and they're tense. Um, when it's a heavy game and it's long and I'm I don't feel like what I'm doing matters. Um, I tune out immediately. Now you could say that to any game, but in a heavy game specifically, if you have that. God, what should I do? Oh, this is so hard. The time just goes by really quickly, you know. The other thing is cooperative games are worth their weight in gold because it's totally that team bonding experience, which automatically makes it more memorable. So what made XCOM more memorable than Pandemic or, um, shoot, what? where's my memory? The Dead of Island Winter? one. What's that? I was going to say Dead of Winter. Dead of Forbidden Winter, Island. I, Forbidden Island, Dead of Winter is... It's impossible to quarterback in this one, first of all. So no one could just tell you exactly what to do because you have to do your own specific job in a certain amount of time. So there's no quarterbacking. And because of that time, I think because of the time pressure, I think that's why it's so memorable is because it's so stressful. Man, that sounds really cool. What about you, Sean? So I had a similar experience this weekend. I played uh, a game called Megasiv. Do you guys want me to elevator pitch it? Hell yeah. SBJ, what do you want them to be? Uh, what do you want to be someone, Sean, or do you want to be with someone? I like being someone. How Me- about a Megasiv? <laughs> I was going to say a Russian ambassador. Russian ambassador. Sure. How's that sound, SBJ? That sounds good. <laughs> okay. All right. Здравствуйте, как дела? Меня зовут Шон. I'm here today to tell you about Megasiv, the game by Flo Dehan and Jean Rodriguez. Let me get my accent back in order. 
It's very hard to do over the microphone, and I feel like I'm speaking kind of Italian. <laughs> anyway, Mega Civ is for 5 to 18 players. Comrades, I should say. Published just last year. It takes between 360 and 720 minutes. It's very long. It's a mega version of the classic Sid Meier Civilization game. On board, this accent is all over the place. I'm getting kind of French right now. That doesn't matter. <laughs> Back to normal. Okay. You are building up a civilization like the Greeks or Romans or French, not the French, but you see the point. And you have to buy trade cards and trade them with other people to turn in sets, to get points, to get technology, so that your cities can get better. I did this for charity. There goes that French again. <laughs> it's so hard to keep an accent stable because I can't hear myself very well because my game has turned out. Don't ding him, SBJ. Don't do it. It took me 18 hours to play. Come on, get back to Zrasvichi. There we are. Hmm, Russia, Mother Russia. Yes, okay. This game is not so hard. It's very simple, but it's hard to master. And there are long periods of downtime, maybe 30 minutes or so, or God damn it. Anyway, okay. Oh. All right, just stop. <laughs> that was the worst. It's so, so I spent a month in Russia when I was a kid, and I I don't speak a little Russian, but I could speak, you know, what I said in the beginning. Like, hey, what's up? My name is Sean. But man, it's so hard to hear yourself. <laughs> I was going all over the place. I'm also shitty at accents, but you know. You're so good. It was real good. Okay. Loves you. So um Megasiv is exactly what it sounds like. It's like civilization, but we played it with 18 players. We played it from nine in the morning until five the next morning. Damn. Um, I left at one in the morning. Uh, we played it for charity with the DFW Nerd Nighters. We were supporting uh, fantasy author Patrick Rothfuss's charity, worldbuilders.org. I think we donated a couple goats. I wanted to petition that the name of the charity be called Goats and Hoes, but uh, they didn't do that. So essentially, you are this ancient civilization. You might be Egypt. You might be Rome. I was Hadi, which is between the Assyrians and Hellas, which is Greek. And your population will expand. You'll collect taxes. You'll move your population out. You'll build cities. And then with those cities, you'll start drawing commodity cards like fruit, bone, stone, that kind of thing. Now, the, this part of the game is the really fun part. There's a 10-minute trading round, complete and total free-form trading, because you're trying to get sets. Let's Three bone is worth exponentially more than one bone. And then certain things are worth more than others. Gold is worth more than fruit. Fruit is worth more than dirt. That kind of thing. So you got I'm not eighteen lie people. To you, man, this sounds horribly boring to me right now. Well, this uh, part is fun. You have eighteen people running around with a ten-minute timer, going bone, bone. I got bone for fruit. Does anybody have fruit? I've oh, got so salt, it's like but pit? I don't got fruit. Almost yes. like shit. Okay, yeah. sweet. That does sound yeah. fun. And it's really, really stressful. You have to trade a minimum of three cards. And here's the thing that makes this really fun. The first two things you say have to be the truth, and the rest can be a lie. So you could say, I'll give you um, two bone and two silver. Now, that means if I give them it, they have to have two bone in there, guaranteed. But everything after those first two bone, two silver, it could be dirt, it could be, you know, fruit, it could be a catastrophe, a calamity, like an earthquake or you know, barbarians or some shit. See so if people go trading like, bones for earthquakes. 
Exactly. Battle. So you have some people going, so I need silver. It's like, cool, I can give you two bone and two silver. And they're like, fuck you, buddy. Give me two silver and two bone. I see what you're trying to do. And they're like, oh, I can't do that. I got to go by. Oh, so um, it's not like the first two statements that come out of your mouth. It's just the first two commodities. So when no, you no, say it is the first two statements. So like two bone and two silver means that the two bone have to be true. But two silver and bo- two bone means the two silver have to be true. Does that yeah. make sense? Yes. So you have a lot of that. And I learned that you really do have to lie to people. And I felt so guilty because somebody would be so excited, like, oh, four timber, I'm going to be able to trade those in. And it's like, sorry, I give you one timber, an earthquake, and a plague. Gotta go. Um, <laughs> uh, and of course, you know, Jared did a great job of enforcing what he called the magic circle rules, which are things like never claiming that you gave somebody a, ca- a calamity or claiming that you got one. That the rule war after the trade, you kind of had to be like, cool. Because it gets really shitty when somebody says, they gave me a calamity, and no one will trade with you for the next nine minutes. Um, Or, I gave them a calamity, don't trade with them. So he did a really good job of that. But then you kind of sit down, and people pick what technologies they want to buy with their cards, and that's like 30 minutes of downtime. Like, I brought a book. And so it can get long. The game turns become an hour at least long near the end of the game. That trading is really fun, and building your civilization is fun. And, you know, there are people there like Matt Fantastic, Joshua Giddens. Uh, C.W. Karstens, Chris Bryant uh, from Board with Life. So there were tons of people JR I could talk to. as if everyone knew who he was, but that's J.R. Honeycutt, game designer and like lead guy of the Nerd Nighters. Is mm-hmm. he is along with Ace? Right? I forget his last name, but he's yeah one of the n- big Nerd Nighters. And the co-designer, um, John Rodriguez, was there and was sitting next to me. We were allies. Oh, sweet! So it's really weird. I don't know that I'd do it again. It's some people's favorite game. If you like that kind of game, it, I mean, it scratches that itch so hard, man. I remember being like, finally, I can afford agriculture. Now my population can expand. And that actually feeling really good. Major pitfalls for me are no ketchup mechanics, um, which uh, all the stuff I learned from Alan, basically. But um, (laughs) I really feel like you need a way, if you're in last place, to be moving forward Better. I think it's better when at the end of the game there's a mad dash for the finish rather than two or three people competing and the rest of us deciding which one of those guys we want to support. So I almost feel like somebody should get ahead, like you wouldn't say Russian roulette, and be about to like pull the trigger for the win. But all the losers have been helped so much that they now have a shot to, t- to snatch it away from them. Whereas in this, we were left to do the other thing, which is dogpiling on the leader, which slows game time down dramatically. Um, I remember when we all dogpiled on JR because he was ahead, he kind of snarkily, and he was a good guy, but he was like, well, guys, we're for the first time not playing suboptimally. We're now slowing down the game. Um, And this was at like midnight, and it was like, fuck you. The co-designer ended up winning at, I think, five in the morning. We raised about $1,000 for charity, but I also have that. I wanted to talk about this at some point. People flew in for the charity, right? So we spent more than we earned on getting there. And I'm wondering, like, should we have just donated that the money we would have spent or is the attention we're getting from play? Because there was like a live stream. There was at least 100 people watching the whole time on Twitch. Um, We were getting to talk about that kind of thing. It's obviously good publicity for us. But overhead costs of charity versus actual dollars spent given to charity. Like, that's a that's a thing that I feel conflicted about. What about you guys? So, wait, let's just clarify. So what you're saying is they spent probably hundreds of dollars flying in to Dallas mm-hmm. to play this 18 player game something uh, like yeah. that mm-hmm. and the charity only brought in 
a thousand dollars or a couple thousand? What, what, what you... uh, I think I think a thousand, maybe a little bit more than that. So if I just spent a couple hundred dollars and there's like 18 of us or realistically, there's probably more like six or seven, but easily people spent way more money traveling there to play this game than the charity made itself. You're saying, man, why didn't they just give that money to charity instead? And I get the reasoning because like without this, like we are, you know, drawing attention to it. We get to interface with people. Events are always good. Any good is better than no good, right? Like spending, you know, a thousand to raise a thousand is is good because that thousand still got raised, right? Um, it was just something I thought about. And I think there was more money raised than that, like on the side. Like I know Josh Gathens had like three stores supporting him. They were gonna donate money per every point he had at the end of the game. Oh, so I don't think cool. it's a clear cut like we lost money by any means. But it was just the first time I thought about that, where it was like, maybe we could have played online. Maybe we could have. How can we keep as much money as possible on the field? I think SBJ actually left us. He was so sick of hearing about it. No, you were just about to say something, SBJ. Your thoughts and questions? I was. I, <laughs> I think your time and your experience is worth something. I mean, you could, anyone could argue that. Why don't you just put that money towards charity? But you're right in saying, like, if we didn't all get together, it wouldn't have drawn the attention or it wouldn't have. Maybe done as well as of like, okay, the eight of us will just donate and then let's call it a day because we'd rather donate than spend that money traveling to try to raise more money. So I think while your concerns are valid, the like your time and your experience and your traveling is still worth something. It's interesting hearing you say that because you're the person who threw down with Twitch and people yes. realistically just doing this to promote their own Twitch channels. I'm doing charity, but realistically, I'm hoping you'll start watching my Twitch channel. Well, yeah, I mean, if if the argument there is if I'm if I'm a Twitch streamer and I don't have a lot of viewers and I'm streaming anyways to just all of a sudden say, well, now I'm streaming for charity. It's like, well, no, you were streaming anyways. <laughs> Right. I, I think you're going to charity now, but you're streaming for your own reasons. Right. Well, here's a point I had for Sean, too, because they were coming into Dallas for PAX South. Anyway, most of these people, right? Some of them were. I believe so. Yeah. So my thought was these people likely would be there anyway, but they flew in a day or so early. But I don't think it's out of the wildest realms of imagination that these people would have gotten together anyway to play this game. So the other piece of that is what Sean was saying is, why not? Like, if you're going to get together and get these people to play Megasiv, and some of them have followers, like Matt Fantastic and Joshua Givens, these are people that are well-known in the industry, relatively so. So why not if they're going to get together anyway to just do it for charity? And I think the big difference there, too, is they normally don't stream them playing Megasiv. Yeah, I think no, and I think you're right. I feel really good about it, and I felt it felt cool because I don't do a lot of charity work, and I thought, man, I should be doing a lot more of this stuff. Like, this is so easy to do, even though this took a while. This specific instance of it, but if this is what's happening when people are doing it, then we don't just think about this one event. That's one day out of the year, you know. Because if we had raised three hundred and sixty thousand dollars over the course of a year, that would be a big deal, right? So I think there's that drop in the bucket thing. And, you know, 
the money that we raised, somebody said, you know, bought like two goats and four chickens and like somebody really broke down like specifically what it was buying. Um, and they were like, that's going to feed this family and create wealth in this area. And I was like, wow, that's that's really cool. But yeah, that was just something I was thinking about when I was playing it. And of course, the, the other argument is we had no idea how much money we would raise. So it's not like we knew it was going to be a tit for tat thousand dollars or two thousand or whatever for the flights. It was like this could have been, you know what I mean? Like anything could have happened. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, whew, long game, super I mean, long game. It sounds like something I would like playing a big group game that lasts several hours. But I would, I would not envy the person who sets it up and runs it. It takes three hours to set up and like three hours to break down. And the hardest part about running it, as Alan knows from terms of movement, is getting everyone's attention. Everything is super simple to do after the first like two or three turns. It's they do a very good job teaching you. But for those things where it's like, hey. You we're waiting on you to move, man, you know, because almost all the action in the game is happening simultaneously. Um, people move in specific orders, but you don't have to. You can always move ahead of your order. And at the same time as other people, you just are allowed to wait for other people to move given certain circumstances. But 99 percent of the game is happening simultaneously. So generally just saying like, hey, get moving is tough. It just seems like a grander scale kind of thing of just like diplomacy almost. Yes. Yeah, it was a lot like that. There's a lot of diplomacy going on, a lot of deals being made. You know, I I did no attacking anyone throughout the entire game. Now, I finished like in 11th place, but um, very little militaristic stuff type going on. And I think I'm always going to be down for like a unique experience, you know, like a game of Mega Civ or playing Twilight Imperium once or something like that. Like if it's a unique gaming experience, I want to know what's out there because I think that's what, you know, Alan and I are in the business of is making unique experiences so while this was going on i had a group of friends that went to a cleveland mega game you guys ever hear of the mega games i've heard Uh of it so one was they had one last year and i think it's going to be an annual thing and it was actually came in a published packet originally made in the uk and it plays something like up to 50 people and it's i didn't know mechanically how it worked and i didn't go but they went to the one that was uniquely made this year, and it was all about Cthulhu and Atlantis themed. Nice. And they came back and they spent most of the Tuesday night just talking about it. And I felt like I was a noob, never having played World of Warcraft, listening to them because they had all these inside stories that were just over my head. But the cool thing that made it really appealing to me was I thought it was something close to Mega Civ, but in reality, it's an improv experiment with some very loose rules there. So pretty much whatever you want to do. like a LARP? It is. It's a LARP. In fact, apparently so many people went dressed up. So the rules are pretty much open to the moderators, where if you want to do something outlandish, you go up to an out, a moderator and say, hey, I want to do this. Can I do this? And they say, well, I'll get back to you in a little bit. And they come back. So I, I agree. Now I, I'm more open to just try these experiences for the same reason I mentioned with XCOM in that it's probably unforgettable because even though that was a long ass game, Sean, and this mega game was only eight hours, man, I, I feel like I missed out. Eight hours of improv is a lot. It's a lot of improv. It is. LARPing has a wide swing, too, as we've noticed. That's a story for another day. <laughs> but uh, LARPing can either be like the greatest thing in the world or the worst waste of your time. So we have uh, we have an event set up for Gen Con, don't we, SBJ? Uh, nothing's final for that, no. Okay, well. But we're planning on it, I We're believe. planning on having that. Should we do it for charity, guys? 
if you can find a way to monetize us talking at people, then <laughs> I would absolutely be willing to donate that money to charity. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I reached out to Gen Con before the passes were available, so probably a month ago. They just asked what time we would prefer of what we want to do, how big the room we would need. It's pretty much we just want to do this show at Gen Con. Cool. And I don't, I, I've never applied for a Gen Con event, so I don't know how fast they get back to you or when they get back to you or if that's... You kind of got to push them a little bit. Yeah, I just filled out the form on their website, so I don't know if... That sounds cool. There's more to it than that. But do you guys want to move on to our topic? Nah, that's long enough. I don't want to, especially after we've punished you two weeks in a row. Man, let's Fuck end the it. topic. Yeah, yeah, screw the topic. All well, right, all right. You know what our topic was? Charities. Jeez. Charity. <laughs> Playing for charity bullshit or not. And <laughs> we said better to do it than not. I guess that was our kind of universal conclusion. Like if we can throw some bucks there, sure. There's some well, ways we, to do it better than others. If sure. we say this podcast is for charity, we'll get more listeners. It is for charity. Is for charity. <laughs> awesome alan where, where can they find you charity's a stripper i know by the way we're doing this for her yeah we're doing this for her. uh i am on facebook and people have been friend requesting me and i'm assuming it's from the podcast because i don't know who these people are but keep them <laughs> coming because i'm lonely as hell and i'll accept any friend request you send You're that's just like al- whoring out the facebook likes yeah it's a l a n g e r Ding, D-I-N-G. And I'm also on the tweets. I'm at Alan Girding. Awesome, Sean. The tweets. <laughs> I'm at Sean McCoy, S-E-A-N-M-C-C-O-Y. I also have been getting friend requests from people I don't know, and I've been summarily rejecting them. <laughs> Perfect. Ying and yang. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. It is <laughs> at Dragging a Lake, and you can follow the podcast at Twitter uh, at Tuesday Night Podcast, but remove the day from that. You'll be good to go. (laughs) Otherwise, this episode is... Russian finished. Okay.